So good evening, and I wanted to, in a sense, continue uh, the topic from last week. For those of you who weren't here, last week I talked about uh, mindfulness, and I've tried to discuss a little bit the nature of mindfulness. Then I'd like to continue with that and discuss a little bit about uh, mindfulness practice and how that fits in the wider um, context of Buddhist practice. I ended last week's talk by saying that um, the practice of mindfulness, something like the practice of mindfulness uh, is a great adventure. Um, And um, it can be kind of surprising, I think, to people uh, to think that mindfulness and also in meditation can open up worlds, open up vast realms of human experience that are bigger and vaster and more interesting than, you know, traveling the world, you know, all kinds of other things you can do. Sometimes when people don't know anything about meditation, they think meditation is somehow it's a very narrow um, aspect of human life and spend a lot of time meditating, you're kind of, you're narrowing your life rather than making it bigger. And um, I think it's a little bit of a, kind of like a hourglass. You know, you kind of, you go into the hourglass in the top and it gets narrower for a little while. And then at some point you go through that narrow little passage and then it opens up again. And it turns out that the, op- the open up part is actually much bigger in this hourglass, much bigger than the top part. So, um, and mindfulness is multifaceted. It has many different aspects, and it's best not to have one definition or one idea of what it is. And um, because often mindfulness, when it's uh, presented and discussed, is often discussed in, uh, uh, implicitly, without telling you that, it's often discussed together with other mental factors, other aspects of the mind, uh, as if almost like they're the same thing or there's no distinction being made. Um, so because of that, all the things that mindfulness is associated with, there's all these shades and kind of varieties of mindfulness. But um, in thinking about all the different aspects of mindfulness, for those people who like adventure, uh, mindfulness offers a great um, process of discovery and adventure. For those people who like protection and playing it safe, mindfulness provides a great protection. For those people who uh, like uh, just delight, want, want lots of joy, mindfulness practice can open up to lots of joy. For those people who want to, uh, to understand, mindfulness practice can open to whole new uh, areas of, of understanding. So mindfulness has, you know, has, it's like many doors or it's many different aspects. It's like a, a jewel with many different sides. And depending on what side you look at, you might see different things. It might do different things for you. And each of you is a different kind of person with different uh, tendencies, different abilities, different uh, kind of doors or s- angles you look at uh, and relate to this wonderful jewel of mindfulness. And so uh, some of the sides of the jewel might not speak to you and other sides might. So there's many sides to the jewel. Um, and as I said last week, mindfulness has become extremely popular in the modern West, uh, in America especially. And it's uh, some of you probably came here through um, mindfulness-based uh, uh, stress reduction programs at some of the local hospitals. Sometimes at the end of those eight-week programs, they refer people here. 
and um, and so mindfulness has kind of found its way into uh, a little bit into popular American culture uh, and it has particular meanings in that kind of context sometimes it's different than what it is in the Buddhist one in its essence uh, or I should, maybe shouldn't say essence but one of the kind of basic ways of discussing what mindfulness is in the Buddhist tradition the early Buddhist tradition is it um, means holding something in, in your mind holding something in your attention so um, you know if you want to go to the store and buy milk uh, you have to remember to do that so you have to be mindful hold in mind the fact that you're supposed to buy milk so when you get to the store you don't wonder what am I doing here um, and in a lot of uh, situations in life you have to um, it's helpful to keep something in mind while you're doing it to be mindful keep it in attention um, many years ago I went to see the symphony in San Francisco and um, the thing that stood out the most for me during the first half was my inability to really be present for the music um, you know it was a great thing but my mind was all over there was wandering off thinking about other things and when I finally got into the room uh, then I was uh, watching um, the orchestra and just uh, making all endless commentary about the people I saw playing the music and I wasn't li- really listening to the music but I was like oh that was kind of sloppy way of using the bow and I don't know what I was I don't know what I was thinking but you know I, I could notice that I wasn't really taking in the music so I uh, closed my eyes and with my eyes closed and without kind of the distractions of the visual field then I could take in the music I could hold the music in my mind. I could be mindful. That's kind of holding, the, holding that part of my, my experience. I was holding it in awareness in a certain way or taking it in in a certain way. And that was an act of mindfulness to take it in. That way, to hold, hold that as the focus of my attention. Um, or, I don't know if this is a good example, but uh, there's, um, a few times I've gotten massages. And for me, I noticed a difference between the effect the massage has on me if I'm just let my mind wander and kind of hardly know that I'm getting massage versus when I'm really there and put my attention right there where the masseuse's hands are on my body somehow that seems to the hand the impact the effect of the hand seems to go deeper into my body and have a wonderful effect if I put my, my really attentive to what's happening while I get the massage so again that's a process of holding something in mind you make a decision it's useful to let my mind be directed in this way or take in this part of my experience this you know and there's a huge range of uh, things we could take in in human life and so it's a decision to take to limit and hold something in mind uh, for many people who do mindfulness practice one of the things that we're told to hold in mind is the present moment and so the present moment of course is huge but at least to hold hold us hold the mind in, in the present or take in the present limit the activity of the mind so you really know what's going on in the present moment so that's being mindful of the present moment and then of course there's a whole big range of things you could be aware of in the present moment but still you can be present for something of the present moment so there's holding something in mind or letting the mind kind of take take something in that's happening is mindfulness or holding so, so it's closely connected to memory in Buddhism so to remember something also means to hold something in mind to remember the shopping list to hold that in mind to remember a teaching you heard you hold that in your mind be mindful of a teaching it's often encouraged you know, it's good to mem- learn some of the teachings 
and hold them in your mind so they can be useful at different times. So you hold in mind, you're mindful of loving kindness. Loving kindness means you can be mindful of. You can be mindful of the teachings of impermanence. You can be mindful of the variety, all the different kinds of teachings we have about mindfulness practice. So you're mindful of means you hold it in mind. That's a little bit uh, different meaning than the narrower understanding of mindfulness practice, which is often uh, seen to be non-discursive. You're not supposed to be thinking about anything. You're supposed to let go of all your concepts and ideas and just be present for this moment as it actually is. But in the Buddhist tradition, there's no sharp line between, you know, memory and thinking and conceptualization and pure non-conceptual experience. So mindfulness, is, 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 uh, the word mindfulness in, in Buddhism includes a range of how we use our mind and what is held in common in all these, this range is holding something in mind. Does that make sense? Those of you here last week, does that more or less kind of make sense what I said last week? Didn't contradict myself? So, um, so, Um, well, also, for those people interested in liberation, mindfulness is helpful. So, you know, so mindfulness has so many different functions for different interests people have. So, it should be, you know, you should be at the edge of your seat right now. <laughs> so interested. I'm sure some of you are bored and want to leave. Here we have a few people leaving already. <laughs> and, uh, but the, uh, the, um, so, um, so a very important distinction he made in Buddhism is the difference between mindfulness and mindfulness practice. Mindfulness is, is a function of the mind, activity of the mind, particular functioning of the mind is holding something in mind. And mindfulness practice is something much wider, something more specific or bigger than mindfulness. And um, um, so I don't know what's a good example of something like this like um, swimming and swimming practice are two different things right you know if you're running and the practice of running are two different things because anybody almost anybody I don't know I shouldn't say that but a lot of people can run but, um, but if, if, you, if you tell people you have a practice of running that brings up other, other associations oh that probably, person probably runs every day they probably are training in a certain way. They're developing their capacities. They're probably, you know, getting ready for a race or something, right? As soon as you, when you add the word practice, it, does, uh, it applies other things besides just the running. So mindfulness practice implies other things than just mindfulness. And um, so if we turn to the discourse the Buddha gave called the uh, Four Foundations of Mindfulness, so the Four Applications of Mindfulness, uh, I like the translation for applications of mindfulness because when um, you, um, you have this thing called mindfulness and it can be applied in particular ways. And for the purposes of liberation, the Buddha suggested there are four basic applications which, of the mindfulness which is really useful to do. You could apply the mindfulness, your attention, all kinds of areas in human life. There's so many things you can pay attention to, to the symphony, you know, to television to the traffic, you know, you can do all kinds of things. You, you, 
And the Buddha said, actually, maybe it's not so useful to pay attention to certain things for the purpose of liberation, but rather you can apply it in a particular area. And he said, there's four areas of application which are really well suited if what you want is liberation. So mindfulness practice, then, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, is one of the meanings is, is, is to apply it in these four areas of our life. And I'll tell you in a few minutes what they are. But the other thing is that it's using mindfulness, mindfulness practice is also using mindfulness in a particular way. Dropping here? It's using it in a particular way. And, um, and the, um, oh, that's hopeful. <laughs> Coming back to this notebook. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> mindfulness is um, using it in a particular way. Um, and there are three qualities that you're supposed to use when you practice mindfulness. Um, one is mindfulness itself. The second is, uh, is a wonderful word, translated into English as ardency. To be ardent. To be, um, you know, to ardent to a certain kind of uh, ener- energetic quality. Ardent energy, kind of enthusiasm or certain kind of engagement. Um, uh, being a couch potato is not what the Buddha recommended. You know, you kind of just kind of serious engagement in what you're doing. Ardency, being ardent. And the other is, to, to, there should be an aspect of clear knowing. So here, there's a distinction being made between mindfulness and clear knowing. Where mindfulness is the holding something in mind, and clear knowing is the clear understanding of what it is that you're looking at. And often when we talk about mindfulness in, here in California, we uh, conflate these two meanings. So that we, we seem like we're just talking about the same, you know, the same thing, kind of being aware and being. We use all these words like awareness and mindfulness and attention and knowing, almost as synonyms. Whereas in the teachings of the Buddha, there are shades of difference or differences between these different words. So um, these three qualities of holding of mindfulness, ardency, and um, and clear knowing. So. Um, Mindfulness practice involves all three of those. So if you want to do mindfulness practice, you have to have this ardency. The, the uh, Pali word is kind of like Sanskrit. Uh, maybe you've heard it, uh, tapas. Some of you know the word tapas. Uh, or no, actually, actually it's, it comes from tapas. It's atapa. So tapas has a meaning of kind of fire a little bit. So, um, <clears throat> so, so those three qualities. And then the four applications of mindfulness are the four areas that are particularly useful to apply your mindfulness. It's particularly useful to apply your mindfulness in the area of your physical body. It's particularly useful to apply your mindfulness to the area of your feeling tones. And it's particularly useful to apply your mindfulness to the state of your mind. And it's particularly useful to apply your your mindfulness to the mental qualities and factors and aspects and patterns that go on in your mind. The Buddha said, I think I said this last week, is that um, um, if uh, some animals 
leave their, their habitat, he called it their pasture, then they can be in danger. So, um, you know, if a, if a white rabbit leaves the snow and goes out into, you know, a green forest, its whiteness is going to stand out and some animals are going to come and grab it. So, uh, if you leave your habitat where you kind of know the area, you can be safe. But if you leave your habitat, you might be exposed and there's danger. So, you shouldn't leave your habitat, or the word the Buddha used, you shouldn't leave your pasture. The proper pasture for a monastic or for someone, a practitioner, is these four areas of one's own life. If you want to be safe, is you want to apply, apply your attention, keep your attention close in. I like the word expression, close into yourself, close in. And uh, to really know what's going on at the level of your body, what's going on at the level of your feeling tones, what's going on at the level of your mental state, and what's going on at the level of what's happening in your mind. And um, so, you know, you can save yourself a lot of trouble and you can get a lot of information of what's going on if you know, if you're in touch with your body. You can find out a lot of what's going on by being aware of your state of your mind. And you can protect yourself dramatically by not making big mistakes, by not acting in certain ways when your mind state is dangerous. You know, it's in the grip of hate or ill will. So, the, these, four, these four areas, these four applications, are the proper pasture for, for practitioners. They're that which creates safety for us. And also, it's what keeps us from, um, it's also what helps us move in the direction of liberation. So, when the Buddha gave, talked about mindfulness practice, he didn't, he didn't talk about just choiceless awareness, just be aware of everything freely, you know, what's happening in the present moment. He actually suggested that you actually narrow your attention to particular areas of your life where it's most useful to pay attention. And in that spirit, he suggested when you sit down to do mindfulness practice, that you turn your attention around. This is my interpretation. Turn your attention around 180 degrees from your concerns with the world so that you can feel intimately what's happening here. And again, in my interpretation of it, here in the subjective experience. We can, we can be, you know, we certainly shouldn't ignore the world and not pay, we shouldn't just deny it. That's not the, the, the implication at all here. But in order to demand the, the domain to how to go forward with mindfulness practice is to develop a heightened sensitivity to what's happening in this psychophysical being here, in this kind of, what's happening close in. Close in. So, um, so, um, um, so the expression is um, um, the meditator puts aside their greed and distress for the world. That's the, the instruction. If you want to do mindfulness practice, you have to put aside greed and distress for the world. For some people, it's a paradoxical oxymoron kind of statement because it's because I have greed and distress for the world that I need to practice mindfulness. And now you're telling me I have to get rid of it so I can practice it? That's silly. But how I, so the, but how, how I interpret it is, we have to have understand, in order to do the mindfulness practice, there has to be a willingness to turn the attention away from, at that moment, being concerned with the things out there. 
what he did to me yesterday. You can't believe that bastard. Him. You know? And you can go on and on forever think, talking about him, thinking about him. That's being concerned about the world, distressed with the world. But if you turn your attention 180 degrees and feel what it's like to be distressed, then you've, turned, then you've put aside, by my, my, my interpretation, you put aside, that, aside that, that preoccupation with the world and bring your attention in here to the immediacy of where you can discover safety, understanding, freedom. Make, make, make sense? So, um, um, so as, you know, perhaps it's not so much different if uh, I'm allowed a, a comparison. Um, if you want to uh, take up the practice of running, you have to turn. Uh, you have to put aside your attachment to the couch. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, the couch could complain and say, you don't love me, you don't care about me. And, um, but in fact, after you come back from your run and you kind of have good tone and good strength and lots of energy, you might actually clean the couch. <laughs> the energy for it, you know, it comes back and benefits the couch. But if you stayed in the couch and loved the couch and just stayed there, you know, you, know, you wouldn't have the energy to do anything and the couch is more and more grungy. So, in the same way, you know, uh, by turning away from the world temporarily and learning how to take care of what's going on here, then we can come back in a renewed way and take care of the world in a more helpful and effective way. So, it's going to get more interesting. Mindfulness practice in the West often has, um, there's a rhetoric or a reputation that mindfulness practice is a practice that's radically different from concentration practice. And in fact, sometimes I teach, I teach an introduction to mindfulness class and occasionally I teach an introduction to concentration class, you know, separating out those two practices. There's benefits in doing that and I'll admit there's some problems in making that separation. Um, and when you look at the teachings of the Buddha, it doesn't seem like he makes a sharp distinction between these two practices. They shade into each other and they support each other. And in fact, it might be more useful to think of mindfulness and concentration as two different functions of the mind. So, for example, one function of the mind is to process hearing. Another function of the mind is to process seeing. And maybe if you're hyper Attentive, you can say, well, you're going to do one at a time. But in normal kind of life, both functions are going on for most people, right? And some of you are looking at me, and some of you are hearing me, and you're taking it all in, and it's part of what's going on here. So in the same way, mindfulness and concentration are two different faculties of the mind, functions of the mind, that can operate simultaneously, even though there's differences between them. So... um, um, so when the Buddha discussed um, mindfulness practice, <clears throat> as far as I can tell, he tended to use language of seeing, using the mind's eye. You hold something in the mind's eye, you see something, and the cultivation of mindfulness involves seeing. So um, a lot of examples of how seeing is an aspect of mindfulness. 
um, in um, uh, a concentration practice, the language that's often given is not that of seeing, but much more the language of feeling, in the sense of feeling um, of physical sensations, uh, sensing or touch. Actually, the word touch is often used when talking about concentration practice. So touch is something physical, something you do with your body. Concentration practice is a, a faculty that has a lot to do with being in touch with your body, at least initially. And mindfulness has a lot to do with this opening this mind's eye. And so both of those things can happen together. Just as, for example, if I'm getting a massage, I can take my mind's eye, my understanding, my awareness, my mindfulness, and hold it there where the hands are. And at the same time, I can be aware of these wonderful feelings that are happening in my body right there. How, you know, the delight, the pleasure that's going on there. So those two faculties of being able to feel the pleasure and, and be in touch with the body and to know that's happening while it's happening can happen more or less at the same time, right? So um, these four applications of mindfulness, when we learn to do it well and really get into it, learn, come, turn away from the concerns from the world enough to really see what's going on here, be present for what's going on here, that in itself leads to the development of concentration. Because you begin to concentrate and focus on something, not just anything at all, but on something. And as the concentration, as the practice of mindfulness develops and develops, um, it's not meant to be separate from developing concentration, but it's supposed, concentration is supposed to kind of occur in the wake of that. And it's considered to be very important to have concentration develop in the wake of it. Not everyone teaches mindfulness that way, and some people actually will do, uh, teach particular concentration techniques to build up high concentration that in some ways can bypass the four applications of mindfulness. But in the classic uh, description, um, the hope, the expectation is as the application of mindfulness deepens, it comes with the development of concentration. So not only, so the kind of heightened mind that meditation provides is a heightening of mindfulness and a heightening of our capacity to be concentrated. Now, concentration in English, uh, for many people, has strong associations with a kind of one-pointedness of mind. I'm going to hold my mind like a laser on something. That's what concentration is. And um, in the Buddhist tradition, as I interpret it or understand it, it's probably better to call the word samadhi, composure, than it is to call it concentration. Uh, certainly one-pointedness is an aspect of samadhi, but a big part of samadhi is a unification of all our different functions and faculties. So all the aspects of who we are are working in harmony, are unified and composed together, converge together on doing the same thing at the same time. And it doesn't take a lot of self-understanding to realize that our minds and bodies and hearts and feelings are often going in all kinds of different directions. We're often fragmented as people. So you might sit down with a great sense of purpose here. Uh, this is really important. I finally got here. I'm going to meditate. This is important. You know, enlightenment or bust. I mean, nothing, else is, nothing else is as important for me than this. And then you sit down and you start thinking about what you're going to have for dinner. And that's maybe even like a good example. <laughs> You know, you know, what's going on? You know, this was so important, you know. 
and um, and uh, it's really embarrassing for most of us not all of you I know uh, but it's really embarrassing to notice what goes on in our minds and um, and uh, you know and you can you know in spite of this great noble intentions we have so our intentions are to be present and the mind has something else in mind and so it's, it's split it's kind of fra- kind of fragmented um, and there can be multiple fragmentations for example you could sit down here with your purpose is to sit and meditate your mind is going off in the direction of dinner but you had this huge argument at work today and so the anger you feel is still kind of in your pores in your cells in your body and it just kind of this mood that kind of just of anger and aversion which is kind of just permeates everything you do it's like it's, and so that mood of anger is still there kind of that's also kind of in cross purposes with your attempt to be here in an equanimous way so our feelings our emotions could be going in one direction our thoughts can go in other directions our intentions can go in other directions and um, probably all kinds of other things can go you know and you're lucky just to have one thought direction your mind wants to go um, you know it's sometimes it's like a lot of different things all these concerns and all that so part of the function of concentration practice is to begin um, healing those fragmentations and to unify our psychophysical being so that it's not not cross purposes with ourselves but our whole being everything about us is oriented is, is, is moving in the same direction is oriented in the same way lined up aligned up so it's all kind of heading in the same direction it's like instead of having a car that has four wheels and each wheel has a different idea of where to go you have a car all four wheels are going in the same direction and the car goes in a nice way um, so the function part of the purpose of concentration practice is, is involve, it involves this unification this composure so our physical body is composed for the purposes of meditation I've meditated sometimes and felt this tremendous urge in my legs to bolt <laughs> let's get out of here and uh, I'm not composed then you know I'm not really here and um, and then also bring together our emotional life so our emotional life is supportive and actually part of the process of being concentrated and our mental life as well so it's all brought together into, into harmony and when that harmony happens it's a delight it's really really wonderful and um, uh, it just you, know, you feel kind of whole you feel complete you feel harm, uh, a sense of wholeness or well-being that arises uh, it can be painful to be in cross purposes with oneself um, <clears throat> and to give you maybe a little bit of sense um, of this um, I think that uh, maybe most of you hope, hope most of you had the experience of engaging in something that really had your interest and uh, and um, you know maybe doing a hobby or reading a good book or something it really captured your interest and you were so involved in this your mind didn't stop thinking necessarily but your thoughts were about this and um, and your attention your you know so much so that maybe someone called your name and they, you, they, you couldn't really hear them uh, because you're so engaged in this thing that you're doing and in that kind of there's a sense of well-being that can well up in that kind of rapt interest in fact that rapt interest sometimes can give birth to a sense of rapture and uh, the joy the delight can be actually quite strong 
when the rapt interest is strong enough. So it's one thing to get, have rapt interest in something that's inherently compelling. It's another to have rapt interest on the breath. You know, on my body, you know, this fragmented life of mine. And so it's a big training to develop the capacity to be present enough for the harmonization, the composure to happen, the unification to happen, and, so, and to get into this place where there's this rapt interest in what we're doing in meditation. One of the signs that this rapt attention is beginning to happen, develop, is that the five hindrances have fallen away. And the five hindrances are the hindrance of, of sensual desire, the hindrance of ill will, the hindrance of sloth and torpor, the hindrance of anxiety and restlessness, and the hindrance of doubt. And these are said to be five particularly strong forces in the mind that can operate even on very subtle levels of the mind that keep the mind fragmented, keep the mind going out, disappearing, not being present, not staying here. And, um, and one of the huge tasks of any meditator is to overcome these hindrances. And that can take a long time. It takes a lot of understanding. In fact, when I teach about the hindrances, I tell people that uh, one of the very important tasks is to really understand the hindrances really well. And for that to happen, you have to have hindrances. And so don't be in a rush to get rid of them. Um, you don't feel like it's a personal failing over there and be impatient. But actually, if they're, gonna, if they're happening to you, take them up as the subject of study. So you can really understand how desire works for you. Really understand it well and deeply, how ill will really works for you. Because if you understand it deeply and well, it's easier to become free of it. If you don't understand it well, then uh, it's easier for it to have hooks to grab you and lead you astray. So take your time, be very patient, do the homework. But eventually, the hindrances no longer trouble you. You somehow overcome the hindrances enough uh, so that in meditation uh, you are free of them. The freedom from the hindrances is said to produce a certain kind of joy, a particular kind of joy. Some people have to be reminded to feel that joy. But um, it's kind of a relief. Wow, I'm finally not kind of being pulled around by, these, by the nose, by these hindrances. I finally have some mastery, some control over my own mind. And now my mind is wieldable. Can you say that in English? I can wield it. Is that right, right, right there? Wieldy. My mind is wieldy. And um, the mind can be used. Rather than the mind using you, now the mind can be used. Um, uh, and it doesn't require you know, this um, you know, greed or hate to engage it. Uh, it's engaged because of the natural capacity of the mind is soft, malleable, and wieldy. And so there's some kind of delight that it gets uh, born from that kind of uh, mastery of the mind. And then as the, as the practice uh, deepens further, there's increasing levels of concentration that can happen that give birth to increasing levels of delight and happiness. The mindfulness practice is needed in order to develop concentration. The concentration is needed to develop mindfulness. This is not a paradox. What it means is that you start off with mindfulness 
And mindfulness helps you develop the composure, the concentration. And as the concentration develops, then you can take your mindfulness to a new level. To a deeper level, more, more mature level. When mindfulness goes to a more mature level, because it's yoked together with concentration, because the concentration is there together with the mindfulness, then it's possible to open up to vipassana. Vipassana is sometimes translated into English as insight or clear seeing. And often vipassana is treated as another one of those synonyms with mindfulness. I do mindfulness practice, I do vipassana practice, it's all the same, right? Vipassana is not a practice. Vipassana means insight. It's the result of practice. And when there's strong concentration and strong mindfulness, then that itself almost naturally can open up to insight. We begin understanding more clearly what's going on in a deep way. And one of the reasons why concentration is needed for this is that as we get more concentrated, it begins to thin out our thinking. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but um, we can think in different degrees of intensity, different strengths. Thinking can be really powerful and loud and pounding away in your mind, or thinking can be really soft and light. Thinking can seem really substantial, like it's the most important thing in the world. And thinking can seem so ephemeral that it's like not even there. You can feel like you almost you can almost feel like you put your hand right through it. It's like like a cloud. It's not and. Um, as concentration deepens, part of its function is to begin to thin away, to, to, to thin out the thoughts. It can be hard to have thoughts stop entirely, but to have the thoughts thin out. And you actually feel it in your mind. They get thinner and thinner, weaker and weaker. And they might not have stopped, but they get weaker and weaker. And then eventually, at some point, uh, certainly regular discursive thinking stops entirely in uh, deep states of concentration. So when concentration and mindfulness are joined together, then um, there's possibility for vipassana or insight. So, um, I feel like that's enough for today. Uh, we can, I want to take a few, few minutes for questions. Um, and if this topic seems interesting for you, I mean, most of you stayed, then, um, I thought maybe next week I could uh, talk more about concentration because I just scratch the surface. And then the following week, maybe we can talk more about Vipassana. So it kind of builds, right? As we go through these weeks. Does that interest you? Yes. So, um, so we have five minutes. If anyone has any questions, you'd like... Yes. Earlier on, you would... Um in the beginning of your talk, you had said there were three things. Is it on? Yes. Is yeah. it on now? Yeah, you hold closer. Okay. Um, there were three things that involved with the practice. One was mindfulness, ardency, and then the third one, I came to the conclusion it was sort of clear, clear idea of what you're focusing on or a clearness about what you're working on. So I'm a little confused between that, that clear-sightedness and mindfulness. Is mm -hmm. mindfulness more about the body in that sense? Yeah. And clear-sightedness more is about what being, not being distracted so much, but what you're actually work, working yeah. on in that regard? Yes. 
Uh, it's a great question, and um, of course, you know, I, I should probably have an answer for you, but I'm a little bit confused myself. <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, the distinction that you're making here is between, uh, you're asking about is mindfulness. There's three qualities that uh, come into play when you do mindfulness practice. Mindfulness, ardency, and clear knowing. And ardency, that's clear enough, right? Uh, energetic engagement in what you're doing. But what's the difference between mindfulness and clear knowing? And here in the West, many teachers treat them as synonyms. No difference between them. And um, now mindfulness can be understood in the early traditions as holding something in mind. So you're going to hold your breath in mind. That's mindfulness. The, um, but what, in clear knowing, how is that different from mindfulness? That's what I'm, when I look at the, at the discourses of the Buddha and try to really understand what, he, what he's teaching, I haven't really come to a dis- conclusion about what, this cl- what he means by sampajana, clear knowing. So I apologize. I should know. But, uh, uh, clear, uh, but the clear knowing, um, I th- I, my understanding, involves more than just holding something in mind, but it's a cognitive activity where there's a rec- recognition and knowing of something. So you don't just hold your attention in the breath, but you know your breath. So, for example, you know that this is an in-breath. You know this is an out-breath. You know this is a short breath, you know this is a long breath. You know that the in-breath involves a, a expansion, you know the out-breath involves a, a contraction. So you, so you start knowing something about w- what you're holding your mind to. And that knowing has a lot of dimensions, a lot you can know. And um, so that's, this, that's the best distinction I can make. Does that help you? Yes. Yes? Um, yeah, I was wondering the distinction between um, when you're talking about focusing on the body yeah. and then the emotions. And then you said the thought, like the thoughts, and then you said the or the mental state, and then the thought processes and mental patterns. And I was wondering the distinction between a mental state and the patterns. Okay, good. Or like three. Yeah. Of, what, yeah so the uh, the third uh, application or foundation of mindfulness is. Um, mental uh, state, state, of, state of your mind uh, and, um, and the fifth is what's called uh, dhammas or dharmas and the third is, is the easiest one to explain it's the general state or the mood of your mind or your heart the word chitta can mean heart or mind so the general kind of state of mind so you see someone in the street who's angry you can kind of just feel the mood just permeates him and uh, that's, you, know, you can feel that mood, or you can feel it in yourself. Or you feel very generous, and this is a mood of generosity. I just, anybody, you see anybody, you're ready to give, things, give them to something. So it's a, it's a generalized mood. It's kind of like the sum total gestalt, sum total kind of flavor of the mind at any given time. Um, now that sum total flavor is certainly influenced by the factors that are in the mind. So chances are, if there's a, if there's a mood of anger, chances are there's a factor of anger operating as well. The, the, um, the fourth foundation, the fourth application, has to do with focusing on what's called dhammas or dharmas. And um, this is focusing on uh, particular qualities or factors of things that are happening inside the mind, within the mind itself. So it's knowing the hindrances, knowing the, 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 the functioning of how de- you know, desire as a, not as a mood but as a particular factor or functioning of the mind you see the desire you recognize it or ill will it's recognizing um, 
um, um, uh, the quality of the mind that grasps, the clinging in the mind. You actually see the clinging. You know the difference between a mind that clings and a mind that doesn't cling. It's seeing the difference between... Um, um, uh, it's recognizing that as you do this practice, that it, uh, certain particular functions or qualities of mind um, ripen and develop and mature. And so it's a recognition of these wonderful qualities like uh, mindfulness gets stronger, you recognize the uh, joy, tranquility, equanimity, concentration, all develop. And so you see these particular qualities of mind operating. And as you see these particular qualities of mind, factors of the mind operating, you also begin understanding something about their patterns, how they work, what brings them about, what are the conditions that uh, cause them to rise, what are the conditions that put them can fall away. So it's also understanding the patterns or the conditioned nature of the factors of the mind. So it's a little more complex. And um, does, that, does that make sense, really? More, help, more helpful. <laughs> Should we settle for more helpful? <laughs> yes. What you just described for the last, the mental formations, how can that be a application of mindfulness? Because to do all of that, that sounds very discursive. That sounds very, ah, yes, okay, now this would be the seventh factor of aggregation. Or I mean, it doesn't sound like something you'd be doing as a meditation practice. Now, I suppose that um, the computers are really complex. And, um, and you're told, you know, you know, be mindful of your computer. And these are all the things you're supposed to be mindful of. And you open the computer up and, yeah, you're right. They're just, I can't do this. It's too much. But you, you know, most people who, you know, study their computer or fix their computers don't just fix the whole thing at once. They focus on particular things, the hard drive and this and that, and, right? And so, um, and as you get in, as you, you go into the computer, you kind of, certain th- functions of the computer stand out, become clearer and clearer. And um, you didn't see them at first, but you see layers and layers maybe. So, uh, same thing with, with us. Uh, you don't rush ahead and start looking for things which, you know, are not evident. But as the practice unfolds and deepens, these things on their own will start extending out uh, with greater and greater clarity. So, once you're able to be more and more in the present moment and be here, and, and the mind starts being settled and concentrated, um, you'll naturally become, start becoming aware of the hindrances. I guarantee it. You know, you don't, you, no, one, no one has to, you know, tell you. It's just... We just tell you, pay attention to what's keeping you from being present. And you'll be aware of the hindrances. So would that be recognizing belief statements or should statements if you're keeping track of your anger and, and you start, oh, wait a minute, I just saw a should statement go by. It's just like keeping track of one thing at a time that's alive for you. Would that be an example? Yeah, yeah it could be. So, so becoming, being aware of one thing at a time and um, the... Um, um, so you begin seeing what's operating. You see what, how, uh, you know, how you, cl- you know, uh, how, how the, your mind operates, or what are the conditions that, uh, that uh, under which it operates, and um, you know, it's operating principles in a sense. You start seeing that with greater and greater clarity. And what people see will, of course, of course, vary from person to person, and that varies a little bit about how your mind works. I mean, some people are desire types, some people are aversive types, so they'll see different proportions of those things as they look at their mind. And there's so many different things you'll start seeing in your own mind, different ways you get attached and different ways you set free and, you know, joy appears in different ways in different people, so you have different qualities of joy. So you start seeing more and more. And um, now, um, 
it's a little bit, you have to be a little bit careful because um, we have a psychoanalytical culture. And so we can be very good or very bad, I don't know which word, word to use here, at uh, being hypersensitive and interested in all these phenomenal nuances of our psychology and our biography and our biology and our, you know, and you can get an endless amount of time kind of being mindful of so much of this complex world and it's like a maze you'll never get out of. So uh, sometimes it's useful to, um, to know that maybe you should cut through some of this. Maybe some of this is not so useful to pay attention to even though it seems like I'm learning about myself and getting insights. And, and so when, I, when, the, when the Buddha gave his four applications of mindfulness, um, he didn't say, you know, notice your should statements. It could be very wise to do that. It's very helpful in all kinds of situations to do that. But, um, but he actually um, uh, limited the, pa- the pasture the, of practice in a particular way. How, how, how strictly are you supposed to take this limitation or how generous are supposed to be in, a pl- in, in, um, in opening it up to other things? You know, how, how wide the pasture is supposed to be is an interpretation that people have to uh, discover on their own how, what's useful. I've heard some teachers say... Um, you know, and they define the four applications of mindfulness as the area of your body, the area of your feelings, the area of your thoughts or mental state. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness, that just means everything else. <laughs> and that's very generous. And then you could, also, you could also instead take the particular lists that are listed in the fourth foundation and, uh, and just kind of narrow your attention, just those aspects. And one of the benefits of that is that um, um, there are, many, for example, there are many things to be desirous of. And you can maybe spend a lot of time making a catalog of all the things you want. But that's not going to, it, it might, might, might be a waste of your time to be interested in all the different varieties of desire that you have. It might be more interesting to cut through it and just say, this is desire. And see it as desire rather than being concerned with desire, what it's desire for. Does make sense? And so with should statements, um, it might be useful not so much to focus on the should, but rather to focus on the clinging or the aversion that might or might not be part of it. And um, I mean, I think anybody who does meditation is operating under a should. I think it's okay. I think it's okay. I think there's you know, certainly appropriate times. I certainly know that some people who meditate discover how oppressive their shooting is, and they and it's so helpful to be free of it. But the um, but we don't want to get rid of all shoulds. Like we should stop soon, right? <laughs> you, you would like you would like me to have that thought. <laughs> oh, I don't do shoulds anymore. <laughs> So anyway, I hope this is helpful. I realize it's a lot of information, kind of conveying a lot of information. My inspiration for giving this talk was not to give information, but somehow to um, channel the retreat I was on two weeks. It's a wonderful, strong two-week retreat. And I thought maybe I'd just give this talk and still be in that mood. But, but some, I don't know, but I somehow, just, I felt like I just gave a lot of information today. So... Um,
more next week. <laughs> Thank you.